Heavenly Father, we, your people, come before you once again, marveling at your great wisdom. For, for you, from before the foundation of the world, set forth a plan to redeem that world to yourself. The eternal God created a people for himself, a people who would reflect his triune nature. For you saved us from our sins to not be alone, but to be part of a community to know your people and to, to know your love and the love of your people. Your plan brings us into a people who are called to love and serve you through their love and, sac and service for each other. Lord, we confess that we do not love your people as you have called us to. We are quick to accuse, slow to forgive. We hold grudges and we do not act in love towards those around us. We are selfish and only look out for our own interests and not the interests of others. Forgive us for not being like you. Forgive us for loving ourselves more than we love you and your people. Lord, give us hearts that are filled with a love for others. Father, we desperately need you if we are to model the community that you desire us to be. Lord, we do thank you that you are faithful in your forgiveness. We thank you that you hear us when we cry out to you. We also thank you for putting us in this world with other gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. This morning, we pray for a new church plant here in Salem, Peace Bible Church, which is planted out of Bethany Baptist. Lord, we pray for Pastor Casey Lute as he looks to be faithful to your word and obediently preach, teach, and disciple people here in the Salem area. We pray for them that they would have many years of faithful witness here in the valley. Lord, we also pray for ourselves. This morning we pray for Debbie Holland. As she has recently received the diagnosis of cancer and is recovering from surgery, Lord, we pray that you would make yourself visibly faithful to them. Lord, may they be filled with hope in your goodness through this process. Father, give her strength as she recovers, and the doctor's wisdom as they consider treatment options. And as she recovers, Lord, we ask that you would heal her. Lord, give her many more years of life here on this earth. Finally, Lord, we pray for the word. Lord, we thank you for Hans's faithful, diligent study this week, and we pray that, that the, the seed of your word, Lord, would bear fruit in our lives in the days to come. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Grab your Bibles, and you can open up to the letter to Philemon. If you don't know where it is, it's the page right before Hebrews. And as you're turning, I want to ask you a very important question. And I want you to pause and truly think about it. What identifies a local church as effective? What identifies a local church as effective? Think about that for a minute. All of us have opinions. It's an important question for each of us as Christians. Because the answer to this question has far-reaching implications. And it will quickly point to theological foundations and expectations that you and I personally have about the local church. Some might suggest that effectiveness is found in the number of attendees, the number of programs offered, a diversity of people that make up the congregation, the outreach of the church, the tithe income, the mission spending, the method of preaching, the style of preaching, and so on. Or it might be subjective for some, where a church's effectiveness is rated off of a person's experience and their relationships. And perhaps each of these might have some validity, but they don't answer the core question we should be interested in answering as Christians, because the core question is a little bit longer. What does the Bible say identifies a local church as effective? What does the Bible say 
identifies a local church as effective? Now, this is the core question because our hearts are often wrong in their perception. And we can easily be converted to the world's way of thinking about popularity and success. This is especially true because life in the church, as we noticed last week, will very rarely be easy, comfortable, or clean. In fact, we saw in the sermon last week that the church has always been a beautiful mess. Amen? In the local church throughout time and space, including in Paul's day, messiness and struggle intertwine with sanctification and God's glory, where glimpses of the ideal are seen amidst the brokenness, and they draw us closer to Christ. And so the church is always pursuing an ideal, while also reckoning with our distance from that ideal in the moment so that we can continue building towards it. This is the tension we sit in within the local church. We hold ourselves to a high ideal and yet set our expectations such that we realize we will be growing into this ideal the entirety of our time on this earth. And this tension is the same that we will see today and next week. For today, we jump into the short but very weighty letter of Paul to Philemon. In this letter, we will see Paul call Philemon, and really the whole local church of which he is a part, to an ideal that will stretch them in their knowledge and living out of the gospel. And part of the reason this letter's importance far outweighs its length is that it will also show us what it looks like to deal with the messy reality that we are still on this side of renewed heaven and renewed earth. Philemon, placed up against the backdrop of the letter to the Colossians, which, which we have just concluded, will give us one of the best real-world looks into the ideal that the church should pursue. In doing so, Paul will tell us clearly what the Bible identifies as an effective local church or an effective fellowship. It is one in which the fellowship reflects the gospel. An effective church, an effective local church, is one in which its fellowship reflects the gospel. Now, we're going to break this short letter up into two sections, a two-part teaching. The first, which we will look at today, will cover the greeting and closing and Paul's opening prayer in which he prays for Philemon and the Colossian church to have an effective fellowship that reflects the gospel. That's what we'll cover today. And that's the title of today's sermon. And then next week, we're going to discuss Paul's practice of effective fellowship that reflects the gospel. And there we will see his call to Philemon and the rest of the house church in Colossae to follow his example. Now, since this letter is so short, we have the luxury, both this week and next, of reading it in its entirety. And then we will unpack verses 1 through 7 and 23 through 25 as we see what we have entitled Paul's Prayer for Effective Fellowship that Reflects the Gospel. <clears throat> so, excuse me, let's go ahead and read the letter of Paul to Philemon, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. 
For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now the background of Philemon flows directly out of the background of Colossians. That's why we're pairing it together. You will notice that many of the same names included in the opening and closing greetings are the same as those included in Colossians. Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke are all referenced in both. In Colossians 4.9, Onesimus is noted as one of you. You can see it up on the screen there. One of you, when Paul is writing to the local church at Colossae. This is the same church that, we can surmise from Colossians, was started by Epaphras as a disciple of Paul. And this infant church was most likely meeting in a large estate capable of housing this small congregation. It was a home church, but not a home church that many of us think about. This was a large estate. We know that the house they were meeting in was the property of one or all of the individuals named in the introduction. It was possible even that Philemon was the estate owner and the head of household and a kind of elder in the church as well as host to the church. Athea was very likely, uh, it was very likely that she was his wife, and there is even a possibility that Archippus was their son. Or it could be that they were three siblings who all owned the estate. We cannot be sure, but it seems very likely that they were closely related. Now, at the very least, we know that Philemon was an estate owner in whose employ was at least one servant, Onesimus. And further, we know from this letter that Philemon and Onesimus were not on good terms of wholeheartedness towards one another. So Paul is writing to try and remedy the situation and act as a mediator. And this is the point where the theories on background for Philemon begin to diverge. The most prominent theory is that Onesimus is a runaway slave who also stole money from Philemon. And somehow he ended up in the same prison as Paul, and Paul was able to convert him, call him to repentance, and now he wants to send him back to Onesimus. Unfortunately, there are a number of problems with this theory, even though it is the majority opinion. For example, the timing of the letter aligns with Paul's imprisonment in Rome, which is a good long way from Asia Minor, especially in those days, and therefore, it was highly unlikely that Philemon would somehow end up in the same prison just by chance. Imagine if one of us left this church and went and visited somebody and found them in, I don't know, Maine, and just ended up in the same prison by chance. It would be kind of the same thing. Now, especially, this was troublesome given the fact that Onesimus was a servant and Paul a Roman citizen. They would never have been housed together as prisoners and it would be illegal and put Paul's ministry at risk for him to aid and assist a runaway slave. For all these reasons, this is a tough theory. A second opinion is that Onesimus has somehow wronged Philemon and came to Paul to seek his help, not as a runaway slave, but as more of like an alienated slave. But this, as well, does not hold a lot of water, nor is it likely that Onesimus could have come all the way to Rome as an alienated slave on his own dime. The more likely theory put forth by a number of other commentators is that Onesimus was indeed one of the servants in Philemon's home. But he was sent by Philemon and the church of which he was a part to serve Paul during Paul's house arrest and imprisonment. In essence, he had given Philemon as a servant to Paul, but something miraculous had happened in Paul's employment. Notice verse 13, for example. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. 
This language helps us to see that this is a possibility, and that's all I'm giving it to you, is a possibility, just like the first and second theories. Now, before you place any 2023 filter on this situation and take issue with Paul having a servant, remember that the majority of the Roman Empire was classified as servants in the employ of Roman citizens. This was the system of employment of the day so that lower levels of society could be provided for. It's just what existed. And so for Paul to accept a slave on the behalf of Philemon would not have been out of the ordinary, nor can we put a 2023 filter on him for that purpose. If you want to discuss that further, I'm more than happy to do so, but that's where I'm going to leave it. Now, in the midst of that situation, Paul evangelized Onesimus, and Onesimus had been converted at the heart level. And Paul is now attempting to send Onesimus back to his owner so that Philemon might recognize his new relationship to Onesimus as a brother, a brother in Christ, and no longer simply a servant in his employment, or possibly even a servant who had wronged him. And then Paul is asking for Philemon to send him back to Paul as a fellow worker for the gospel. I believe as we unpack this, you will see that this is the more likely scenario given what we have to work with. And so this church was dealing with the messiness of possible errant doctrine in its midst, as we saw in Colossians, as well as a relational breach among two of its members. Again, various theories as to what that breach was, but we know there was a breach in relationship. Colossians or the church in Colossae, was a bit messy, don't you think? Lots of pastoral concerns. So Paul writes Colossians and Philemon in order to pray for them and call them to the ideal of effective fellowship that reflects the gospel. And as we will see, his focus throughout this letter is the gospel. By preaching and acting out a living parable of the gospel— Paul is hoping that they will be drawn into this ideal of effective fellowship and understand Christ all the more because of it. And so he starts with the natural outcome of the gospel, which is the background of reordered fellowships brought about by the gospel. The background of reordered fellowship brought about by the gospel. What we will see Paul point to is the fact that the gospel dictates what effective fellowship looks like. Now, fellowship is a fancy word for our association and mutual involvement in one another's lives. That's all it means. Our association and mutual involvement in one another's lives. You could replace it with the word communion, with the word church, with the word gathering. Effective fellowship is when our mutual involvement displays the truth of the gospel. But this needs some unpacking because, unfortunately, so many are confused about what the gospel is, and therefore, it is confusing for some to live out fellowship that reflects it. Again, if you're confused about the gospel, you'll be even more confused about what it looks like to live out fellowship that reflects it. For example, if I believe in a therapeutic gospel where God tells me that I am the center of all his redemptive plans and I am worthy of his reckless love just the way I am, my living out of relationships in the church will probably reflect this false gospel as I ask others to worship me. Do you see how that false gospel plays out in false, and I would say evil, fellowship? So you see then that we must know what the gospel is before it can be displayed in effective fellowship. Do you guys agree? So I'm going to ask you for a moment to bear with me as we unpack the gospel because it is needed to understand what effective fellowship based on the gospel looks like. So will you bear with me on this side trail for a moment? All right. The core gospel or good news that each of us should always be ready to declare is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Say it with me. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. 
But taking a step back, let me expand it a bit. You can write this down. It is a very helpful framework for you if you've never seen it before. God, man, sin, Christ, response. God is eternally holy and good. Amen? Amen. He created mankind to reflect his goodness and lordship. But mankind, man, rebelled against him by trying to be our own Lord. Christ then died in our place as a perfect sacrificial offering for that rebellion. He rose from the dead three days later, proving his sacrifice was effective to bring forgiveness and reconciliation with God the Father. And now he sits enthroned over his people, the church, having poured out his spirit into our hearts so that we might be enlivened to the truth and respond to it and live out obedience to his reign as king amongst his people. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and install eternal peace and justice over a renewed creation. This is the gospel. Amen? Amen. This is the good news that we need to be able to declare efficiently and succinctly to anyone around us. The framework of God, man, sin, Christ, response. This is the gospel. But then there is also another angle of looking at this good news that does not remove this central truth, in fact, keeps it central, but looks at what is accomplished that is beyond yours and my personal salvation. And that good news is that from all the rebellious nations, God has sovereignly chosen and saved for himself a specific people in whom he will reflect his glory to the nations. I'll say it again. God has sovereignly chosen and saved for himself a specific people in whom he will reflect his glory to the nations. This one's a bit harder in our me-focused society to preach without looking completely crazy. Because it is crazy. But this is what we declare. Because this is the truth that the Bible declares. And I would argue that this is the good news that the whole Bible actually speaks to more readily than my or your personal salvation, which we have focused on in our hyper-individualistic culture. Now let's paint the picture given by Scripture from the start. The entirety of the human race, beginning with our first mother and father, rebelled against God's authority and reign, and decided for themselves what constitutes good and evil. They became Lord, just as we do every day. This meant that all nations were justly condemned to judgment and punishment from God, as their eternal souls stand in separation from God and in the presence of his omnipresent just judgment. If all mankind entered into this punishment, God would have proven just and good because we are all in rebellion. That is how horrific our sin has been and how greatly we have harmed the beautiful image that he has placed in us. All are condemned, rightly and justly. And yet, in spite of our sin, beginning with Abraham... God sovereignly chose a people whom he would save from their sin. And this choice has never been based on any qualifications or innate worthiness in the people he has saved. It is based solely on God's gracious choice and action. Friends, if this were not the case, if you and I had any innate worthiness in us, And God would be partial and unjust, and we would be responsible in some part for our salvation. Mankind is pervasively sinful and spiritually dead, given to ourselves. But God chose us 
without any qualification and enlivened us to this truth because without his spirit, you cannot hear it nor see it. It is death to you. You actually detest it. And this choice in his sovereign grace that he made was for a specific group of people in whom he has worked this conversion. Are you with me so far? The story of Israel is the story of this gracious choice and God's gracious covenant faithfulness to them. But in the midst of that gracious covenant, they showed clearly that all, not all individual Jews were actually his own. For as a whole, they knowingly and decisively broke his law even in the midst of God's loving discipline upon them. But from this people emerged the word or oracles of God and further still the word of God, Jesus Christ. And through his salvific work on the cross, through his resurrection and enthronement, he poured out the Holy Spirit into those whom he chose and saved and was able to forgive and reconcile to the Father. This was a new age opened in the history of his redeemed people in which the Spirit of God was poured out on those Jews who were truly his own and also spread to the Gentiles. And now men and women from every nation might be saved as this specific group of people saved by his sovereign grace. And this collectively is a people known as his church. This is the good news that Paul declares quite clearly throughout the New Testament. For example, look with me at the book of Ephesians. Go there with me in your Bible. We'll get back to Philemon in a minute. Go to Ephesians. And here, this very clearly stated gospel that I have just summarized, written out in Paul's words. Ephesians 2.1. Give me an amen when you're there. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, and therefore to all the church. He says, and you were dead. Can a dead person raise themselves? Can a dead person raise themselves? No. I want to hear everybody in the room. Can a dead person raise themselves? No. In other words, we have no part to play in our own resurrection. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, so if you're in the world and you're a son of disobedience... What is the contrast to that? If you're of Christ, you are a son of what? Obedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, innately, children of what? Wrath. We all deserved it, like the rest of mankind. But God. Praise him for those two words. Amen? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's grace, friends. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And a false gospel ends there and says, so you can do whatever you want. You don't need to worry about obedience. You can just live your life because God's unconditional love will cover you. False. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are these works? Take a look at chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, the gospel of grace that God has saved the people for himself, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the, what's that word there? What's that word there? I want to hear everybody in the room. What's that word there? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory." This is the good news that through Christ, God has saved a people for himself by his sovereign grace. And this people is made up of Jews and Gentiles scattered and dispersed throughout the world. And rather than being the one assembly of God's people, as was pictured in the Jews at the temple, the temple is now scattered to wherever God's people gather as an assembly known as the local church. The similarity between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God is that our purpose is the same, to live out our faith and allegiance to Yahweh through our love for him as it is reflected in our loving fellowship with his people. And we do so by obeying his commandments. This is effective fellowship brought about by the gospel. If you understand the bigger picture of what God is doing in his redemptive plan, you will understand so much more of the New Testament where God's chosen people, the church, is called to obey his commands. Take, for example, just this statement from 1 John. Now, has anybody else been like me when you were first saved and you were told it's God's unconditional love, you don't have to worry about it, God saved you right where you are, he doesn't care if you sin, basically a false antinomian gospel, right? Then I'd read 1 John and would talk about obeying his commands, and I was like, what is this bait and switch? Did anybody else ever feel that way? you got to be kidding me. Like, which is it? Obey his commands or God loves me unconditionally? I'm confused, right? 1 John 5, 2 through 4, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If we love Christ, the Bible says over and over again, we will obey his commandments. What are these commandments? To love God with everything we are and have, and to love his people as we love him. And all of that flows, all of his law flows out of these two. We learn these commands by reading, studying, and living out Scripture. For Scripture is the primary means by which Jesus exercises lordship over his people, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey him. A church in which the Holy Spirit is present is a church in which obedience is present. Conversion of our heart leads us to obey these two commands and all that flow from them. And when we fail, which we will do, 1 John says it, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you, right? So it's an attempt to strive to obey his commands. And when we do fail, it will lead us, the Holy Spirit will lead us, he will lead us, and scripture will lead us to repent and keep going, all with joy in our hearts because Christ has made us his own for this very purpose. Church, are you with me? We learn the commands of God through the teaching and preaching of Scripture. We carry them out to the best of our ability in our mutual interaction with one another. These are the primary tasks of the local church. Don't get confused. And it has been this way from the beginning of the church. Right after the Holy Spirit was poured out, look at what it says the church devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the commands that we got through Christ, right? And the fellowship. That word there is koinonia, and to the breaking bread and prayers. The apostles' teaching is the commands of Christ, and the fellowship is the interaction of that faith, that gospel worked out through love in the midst of their relationships. The word in the Greek for fellowship is the word koinonia, Everybody say koinonia. Fellowship. It means fellowship, mutual interaction, interchange with one another. 
And God desires for that mutual relating, that mutual interaction that occurs in the church, the koinonia, to reflect the one true gospel. This is effective fellowship. This is an effective church. And the first way it reflects is in the reordering of relationships that we saw last week. And we see again in our text in Philemon. Would you go back there with me? We'll finally get back to Philemon, now that we've looked at the gospel. The first way it reflects it is in the reordering of relationships that we saw last week, and we see again here in our text in Philemon. And so now that we're stronger in our understanding of the gospel that declares what effective fellowship is, let's now look back at our text and read verses 1 through 3 again, and verses 23 through 25. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here we see the reality of the background of reordered fellowship brought about by the gospel. The gospel has redefined the mutual interaction of uh, mutual interaction or fellowship of this chosen people. Look at it with me. First, we see Paul as a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and then again, verse twenty-three, Epaphras as a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. What are they in prison for? Declaring this gospel that we've just gone through: that Christ has died and risen and been enthroned, and that He is Lord and King over His people and really over all creation. In an empire in which Caesar was to be lord and king, this was seen as treason and sedition and punishable by imprisonment and death. You can see this charge even listed against them in Acts 17. Take a look there, Acts 17. The charge against Paul and Silas at this point was these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, against the law, saying that there is another king. And who is that king? It's Jesus. They're imprisoned for declaring the gospel. So both of these men knew that they had been chosen for this very task, to speak the truth of who is truly Lord and King over all mankind, regardless of the consequences. And to be a Christian is to partner together with them in this task, even to the possibility of imprisonment or death. Even if you were the most menial of congregants, At a local home church, this was part and parcel of your task and what you have been chosen to do. Notice that this is why Paul also uses among these greetings the titles fellow worker and fellow soldier. He calls Philemon a fellow worker as well as Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, fellow worker. They are workers in the labor of spreading this good news and calling those whom God has converted to be part of his people of faith that live that faith, that gospel knowledge out in love. But this work is difficult. And our adversary, who is also the accuser of the brethren, will not allow us to go about this work easily or simply. For he's the one making a mess in our midst, amen? He is constantly at work trying to break apart the unity of the faith. And so we face warfare of fighting against him and against our own flesh and against anything that might sully or cloud the reflection of Christ amongst us. And this is hard work. It's warfare to live out effective fellowship based on the gospel. It's warfare in our homes. It's warfare in our churches. And this is why he calls Archippus then a fellow soldier. There are some commentators who believe that it was actually Archippus who was supposed to play a pivotal role in the reconciliation of Philemon and Onesimus. And that that mediation is actually the ministry to which Paul is calling Archippus at the end of Colossians when he tells Archippus to fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, this is just one opinion, but but it could fit for sure. Mediating for reconciliation when imperfect humans are involved is always going to be war against the enemy that desires to divide us. And we'll see more of this, a lot more of this, next week as we continue through this letter. And lastly, Paul uses the identifier of being siblings in Christ when speaking of Timothy and Aphia. Timothy, our brother, Aphia, our sister. 
He emphasizes this when he reminds them of the grace and peace that has come from God the Father. For these Christians to pursue the ideal of a fellowship, regularly working out their faith in love and unity, an effective fellowship, they will need to submit themselves to the lordship of Christ and his commands over and above themselves, over and above their own opinions, their own needs, their own wants, their own rights. And so Paul reiterates in both the opening and closing that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. As we learn in Colossians, he is the Lord over all our relationships. It is only in collectively pursuing obedience to his commands that we will find ourselves united. Let me say that again. It is only in collectively pursuing obedience to his commands that we will find ourselves united. You can hear Paul call for this in our readings today. Uh, our second reading today, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Notice his discussion of effective fellowship here, driving for unity and harmony in the Holy Spirit. And the fact that in order to do so, Jesus has to be Lord. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. God has saved a people for himself. Chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Holy meaning set apart for a purpose. Beloved meaning God has placed his love on us through his grace. We need to put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. See how the gospel of forgiveness in Christ must be then played out amongst ourselves, has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's that, that unity in Christ. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Here's how the Lord exercises his lordship through his scripture. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why? Because he has gathered together a people by his sovereign grace, and we are part of it. And whatever you do, inward or deed, do everything, meaning all of our fellowship and all of our lives, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These words in Colossians are now being required of the congregation here in Philemon, especially being required of Philemon. In the living parable of the gospel that we find here in this letter. It is this background, which we have spent a ton of time now talking about, it is this background of reordered fellowship brought about by the gospel in which Paul will make his request known to Philemon, and in which he says, I have the right to command you to do this, but I'm not going to do that out of love for you. I'm going to request it, and hopefully of your own accord, you will participate. But before he does that, before he asks that request, he does what is usual for his letters. He opens with prayer for the church, and here he prays that they would carry out the effects of the gospel as we have just described. And so next, we'll see the second and last point today, Paul's prayer that their fellowship would effectively display the gospel. Paul's prayer that their fellowship would effectively display the gospel. Let's read again verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, for us to understand this prayer, we must note that each of the yous placed here are singular and aimed at the one Paul refers to as my brother, meaning Philemon. It's a personal letter. But what is really interesting is that this individual letter is written within the greater audience of being a letter to the church of which Philemon is a part. Notice that it says in verse 2 
that it is not just written to Philemon, but to those of his own household and the church that meets in his house. Notice that, end of verse 2, and the church in your house. Friends, this was to be a letter read not just to Philemon, but to the entire church. Oh, boy. One of the things you learn in business school very quickly is the way to appropriately manage someone is to never, ever command them, shame them, or even challenge them in front of their coworkers. How many of you have heard that? Yeah? Good leadership, you always take the person aside. Good parenting, you always take the person aside, right? You never do it in front of their siblings, you never do it in front of their coworkers. Friends, that is a cultural construct that is only in the individualistic West. Here, this letter was to be read, this request to Philemon was to be read in front of his whole church. Hey, Philemon, you know what's right, do what's right. Does the entire church hear that now? Can you imagine that? Immediately, all of our blood is curdling because we're like, no, that's horrible. That's mean. No, it's not mean. (laughs) It's what was required. Okay? Now, notice this. It was read to the entire church, not just to Philemon. Now, why would this be? Friends, because the whole point of the church is to have a healthy accountability to follow the Lord's commands. Imagine how awkward this would have been when read among the body. Philemon is sitting there being addressed among his congregation and being called to something that might be really hard for him to stomach, placing himself on a level plane with his slave, reconciling with someone with whom he was in conflict with. This would be hard to stomach in those days especially. Now, we'll get into the detail of what he is being asked to do next week, but that's the summary. But this is the the point of the accountability of the church. To be part of an effective fellowship of believers is to encourage one another and call one another to evidence their conversion by obeying the commands of Christ. This is why Christ outlined the steps of discipleship in Matthew 18 when sin is involved. We go to the person in private, then with another individual, And then eventually, if it's not going well, we take it to the church, just like Paul is doing here. For there should be a gracious and healthy peer pressure to soften our hearts to the commands of Christ. Now, in our society of rebellious individualism and lordship of the authentic self and felt needs, this mutual accountability and healthy peer pressure is seen as harmful and hurtful and abusive, and cult-like. But friends, this healthy accountability is part and parcel to being an effective fellowship of believers. And you better believe it is not a fast track to growing a church, especially in this culture. We are not to be slanderers. We are not to be accusers of one another, trying to find sin where there is none. That is an ineffective fellowship. But we are also not to be passive when sin is present or the refusal to follow Christ's commands persist. That is also an ineffective fellowship. But friends, there is a fine line in how we do this because even when we confront sin, this too should be gentle and gracious and should reflect the grace of our Lord. This is why Paul says in other letters, be careful when you go to restore someone It must be done gently. And the beautiful part of Philemon is that Paul models this for us throughout this letter. And we're going to see this as we keep going. And friends, this is something that I can grow in and we can grow in as a church. It's something I'm growing in as I learn to be a pastor. I've been pastoring and leading in the church, if you include my lay leadership before this church, for almost 20 years, maybe over it at this point. But let me explain what I mean by a bit of testimony. When I started as a pastor, I was very naive as to what the church was for, why it mattered, and how the gospel and Christ's lordship factored into all of it. I was one who was saved with the false gospel that Jesus did everything in the universe for me. I was the center of the gospel. Really, brothers and sisters, because of this, I was ignorant to almost all of what I have shared thus far in my sermon. 
But by God's grace and over years of making lots of mistakes and then also going and getting educated in seminary and seeing Orthodox faith over the, the years of the church, I started to see the thread of all that I've just laid out for you. And so the necessity of the church and the accountability it holds became more clear and far more necessary in my own Christian walk. And so we started making adjustments as a church. We jumped in with both feet to what discipleship and membership and church discipline looks like. And friends, I want to tell you, I am proud of all of you for enduring in that effort because it has been difficult. But as I personally started to try and push this accountability, I found that I was straying to the side, not of the grace, but of a bit more harshness. And I was requiring and commanding brothers and sisters to follow Christ's commands. I had not yet figured out Paul's tactic of calling someone to account, but then also leaving the results in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And so I am growing personally in my understanding of the balance of gracious accountability. As a church, we all need to understand that when someone is not walking according to the commands of Christ, we need to take on responsibility more readily and more quickly to go to our brothers and sisters earlier in the process as we see them not following the commands of the Lord. And like Paul, we need to point them to the Lord and say, brother, sister, what is Christ and his gospel requiring of you? We need to do this, and we need to be consistent in doing it. We need to do our due diligence to try and point them to obedience. We do so graciously, though, as an individual, and then with another brother or sister, and then, if need be, with the entirety of the church body. But friends, here's the catch, and this is also where we can grow. If this person chooses to not walk in Christ's commands, we will hold no ill will against them, nor will we turn it into some dramatic event. We simply let them be accountable to the Lord, and we trust in the Holy Spirit to work in their life, even when they disagree with the commands of the Lord. This is how we move forward graciously. Because Philemon had a choice, and we'll see this next week. He had a choice of his own accord to agree with Paul and walk in obedience or to not. Either way, we will see Paul graciously lay this out for him and leave the rest in the Holy Spirit's hands. Our hope, as we'll talk about next week, is that part of the reason Philemon is included is because it worked out well. And Philemon actually agreed with Paul and move forward in his request. So we will see this modeled wonderfully as Paul is going to call Philemon to action. And if Philemon were to refuse, he would be outside the commands of Christ and the requirements that the gospel places on those under his grace. But Paul is also letting him make the choice. For he will ultimately not be accountable to Paul or even the Colossian church that meets in Philemon's house. Philemon will ultimately be accountable to Christ. Friends, do you see the, church, the balance of church-wide accountability that is gracious and gentle in its call? Do you see that tension in that balance? This is the culture that we as a church need to strive to reflect. So how does Paul do this tactfully? Well, we see the start of it this week, and we will finish looking at it next week. But first, we see Paul praying, and this is a bigger job than we care to admit. He prays for repentance and change of behavior, which is a gift that comes from God alone. Do you realize that repentance is, in and of itself is a gift, a gracious gift of God? We cannot bring up repentance on our own. We cannot manifest it in ourselves. And so Paul prays in two ways. First, we see Paul praying in thanksgiving for the work that Christ has already done in Philemon. And second, we see Paul praying in supplication that God would continue this work in his friend Philemon for the sake of Christ. Look again at verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul prays for this brother regularly, and it bears repeating that this is one of the primary ways we are responsible for one another. We pray for each other as Christians. And we begin our prayers with thanksgiving for our brothers and sisters, even if we might be in the midst of relational difficulties with those for whom we are praying. 
And what is he most thankful for? That he has heard, most likely from Epaphras and maybe even from Onesimus, that Philemon models faith worked out in love, that he actually shows the effects of the gospel in his fellowship. His faith in Yahweh and in his son, Jesus Christ, is not just a mental ascent for Philemon, but impacts the way that he interacts with all of the saints. And who are these saints that he's talking about? Those chosen by God to be set apart for his purpose. The purpose of living lives of faith worked out in love among the brethren so that the kingdom of God is reflected. These brothers with whom Philemon is practicing effective koinonia, effective fellowship based on the gospel. And Paul himself has been a recipient of this love. Look at verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul himself has been given joy and comfort from the love of Philemon because he has seen that Philemon is not just a Christian in name only, but one who has been converted at the heart so that he who has been forgiven much by Christ loves Christ's people much in response. And this is really amazing pastoral work of Paul. How many of you guys have ever heard of the encouragement sandwich? Anybody ever heard of that? You see Paul doing it here. This is where you give feedback that might be taken as critical or you need to exhort someone to some action. And the best way to deliver it is to put it in the middle of two encouraging statements, right? Your challenge is the meat in, term, uh, in, in place of uh, two encouragements on either side. Paul does this beautifully. He says, Philemon, I thank God for you because your faith in Jesus is worked out in love towards his set-apart people in a way that's evident for all to see. Even I have been a recipient of that love. And because of it, even in the midst of my imprisonment, it brings me joy and comfort and refreshment in my chains. These are the two encouragements. But then between these two encouragements, in verse 6, Paul places the basis for his request that he will then be making in the rest of the letter that we'll look at next week. He has already now prayed in thanksgiving for his brother's faith worked out in love. And now he will pray that this faith worked out in love continues in this difficult request he is about to make of Philemon that we're going to see next week. Look again with me at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, unfortunately, in the ESV, the translation here is a bit rough. For it seems if we read this in the ESV, it's as if Paul is calling Philemon to be evangelistic. Share your faith, brother. Uh, but it would help for you to know that the word behind this sharing of faith is actually the word koinonia. Koinonia. Oops, sorry. There it is. Koinonia. And so the NASB translation is actually the most literal, and it says it this way. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Paul's prayer is that his faith, Philemon's faith and belief in the gospel, by which he had been saved, forgiven and reconciled, would be powerfully active in his interaction with all the saints, including Onesimus. That his fellowship would be effective in reflecting the gospel, even in the most difficult relational conflict and circumstances. To make it even clearer, here is what is happening. There is a relational rift of some sort between Philemon and Onesimus. And so Paul is going to ask Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus because Onesimus has come to Paul requesting this. But this will be a big ask, whether it is relational reconciliation because of conflict or sin, or whether it was simply the fact that Onesimus is now a brother in Christ and Paul is asking Philemon to recognize him as such. Either way, Paul is going to be making a big ask of Philemon. And so he sends this letter to Philemon, but wants it read before the entire body. And there, Paul, in short order, reminds the entire church and Philemon that their faith in a gospel in which they were saved, forgiven, reconciled to God, and made part of his family, that this gospel was the basis for how they should act in effective fellowship. For their faith to be fully effective, this can no longer just be a creed that they say or a belief that they hold for their own personal salvation. Philemon and the rest of the church must make their faith active in effective fellowship with 
Philemon, and Onesimus, where they reconcile with Onesimus in the name of the gospel of reconciliation. For it is in playing out his faith into action that Philemon and the rest of the church will come to a full understanding and knowledge of what Christ has done for them. And he even says that it is possible to do so. He encourages them in this. For notice, in verse, the end of verse 6, it says, the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwelt among this body, was in them individually and collectively. And in these truly converted believers, the Holy Spirit made it possible for them to act out their faith in love for the sake of the one who has saved them, for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake and the sake of the gospel, Paul said it is possible for you to lay down your own rights, your own opinions, your own emotions, your own feelings, so that reconciliation might be displayed to the world, a picture of the gospel. And it is into this request and Paul's example of effective fellowship in the midst of this relational situation that we will continue looking next week. But for today, as we close, here's the application for us. Friends, we believe in a gospel that is based upon Christ's forgiveness and call to reconciliation. Does our faith in receiving that good news and gift affect the way we actually interact? Are we quick to forgive when repentance is present? Are we quick to go to our brothers and sisters when we notice bitterness or anger or even frustration starting to build against them? Are we quick to bear with one another when we make mistakes that are not sinful? Are we quick to unite with one another in the love of Christ as Christ has united us with the Father? Is our faith working out in relationships in our homes and in our church? Are we willing to lay aside our rights for the sake of reconciliation as Christ did for you and for me? He laid aside his right to say, I'm good, I'm staying in heaven, and laid down his very life so that we might be reconciled to him and to the Father and to one another. Let us engage in prayer collectively this week for one another that the Lord might place this kind of effective fellowship that reflects the gospel in the midst of mission fellowship. Amen? Amen. Amen. Mission fellowship, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I see and feel and know your love and faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all of these saints amongst us. And I also pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective so that you reflect the gospel to one another in the surrounding world. And as you do so, I pray that you would further understand the beautiful grace that God has shown to you by making you one of his own and graciously calling you into his chosen people in spite of your rebellion against him. And Mission Fellowship, I pray that you and I would model the gospel so that anyone who is among us or hears of our love for one another would say that our faith works itself out in love. I pray, dear brothers and sisters, that our fellowship, Mission Fellowship, would be effective in displaying the gospel in faith worked out in love. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed ask this prayer of you. Lord, you alone are the one that is able to give us the grace to be saved, but even more so the grace and the gracious gift to repent of our own flesh and to walk in your ways, to be a people that reflect you. That only is a gift that comes from you. We cannot manifest it in ourselves. And if we try, Lord, we will be disheartened. 
And so I pray, God, that you would give me and give us, give our entire fellowship hearts that know and understand the amazing grace that you have lavished on us so that we might realize how much we have been forgiven so that we might then forgive much and love much in return. Lord, you were very clear that for those who are your people, by your spirit, we will work out our faith in love by following your commands. And so, Lord, we beg of you, we plead with you to give us your heart through your Holy Spirit to bind up our flesh and help us through disciplining of our flesh to cast it aside so that we might rightly put on your grace, compassion, mercy, and love and your seriousness with which you pursued your people in love. Help us to be a people that reflects you in that. As we sing to you and as we participate in communion, our common union in the gospel, our koinonia, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of all this and that you would lodge it deep in our souls and minds and hearts so that we might not just leave this place having heard a sermon and maybe even agreed with an amen here or there, but that we would be a people that would say amen every moment of our lives as we leave this place and as we interact with one another in our homes, our places of work, and as we interact with the world. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.